If you have your Bible with you, you can open up to Mark 2. We're going to read uh, the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 2 in just a moment. I want us to think, though, for a second. Uh, you ever look at the friends that you have and wonder how in the world you ever got to be friends? You have strange friends. You have weird friends. Maybe they're sitting in here today and you can even poke them. Um, you, you know, I, I do that often. I kind of wonder. I'm grateful that God provides friendships and relationships with other people and sometimes I wonder how it was that we got together and some of our friendships have a very specific purpose and we're very focused in what that friendship's purpose is for. I gathered together with for the last year and a half right before moving here with a group of guys and our intent, the intent of our friendship and the focus of it was that we would sharpen each other and so we got together in a small group And once a month, we would fast during the day together and then gather together at night and we were memorizing the book of Romans. And so we would do one chapter a month and we would would quote the book of Romans to each other after fasting and then we would pray for one another and then we would break our fast together. A very specific focus that we had uh, for our friendship. And it was a unique group of people. It sounds more like the beginning of a joke than it does the the recipe for a good group of discipleship. It was a fish biologist, a chemical engineer, a dentist, and a pastor. And so we got together, but we had a very intentional focus for our friendship, for that relationship. And I succeeded in that one and in some other friendships that God has provided. But I also have to admit Since becoming a Christian, I have had many friendships with many people, even lost people, where my focus hasn't been where it it should be. That I've had many opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with people that I have friendships, or, or maybe not even friendship, but just relationships with. And I could have shared the gospel with them. And for whatever reason, usually just fear of rejection, I just didn't. And so we all have relationships like that. You can probably think, even as I say that, of relationships that you have with people at work, with people at school, with friendships, with family members that you can think of. I know this person needs Jesus, but for whatever reason, you just haven't been that courageous in bringing them to Jesus. And so, as we think about that today, we're going to look at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, where we see four men showing great faith by bringing their paralyzed friend to Jesus, giving Jesus an opportunity to show everybody that he has authority to forgive sins. So Mark chapter 2, 1 through 12 is where we're going to be. We're done with Mark chapter 1 now, and we're moving on to Mark chapter 2. We're going to take a break, by the way, from the book of Mark after this week uh, for Palm Sunday, Good Friday, Resurrection Sunday, and then we'll get back into Mark after that. So we're going to take a little break after now. But let's stand together as we read God's Word. If you're able, please stand. This is the Word of God, and here is what He says. And when He returned to Capernaum after some days... It was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. 
And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. You can be seated. Verse 1, we're going to see how Jesus interacts with a number of different people, and as we see that, we're going to see the, authority, the identity of Jesus laid forward in a way that causes people to have to respond in some way. And that's the same thing we have to do. As we see who Jesus really is, we have to choose today, how are we going to respond to that? Look at verse 1. It says, And when he had returned to Capernaum, if you remember, he had gone away to, to kind of go on this preaching circuit throughout Galilee, but he had spent the first miracles and all that other stuff were done right there in Capernaum. Now he came back to Capernaum. It says it was reported that he was at home. Most of Jesus' public ministry, his, his initial home, remember, was in Nazareth, not Capernaum. Most of his public ministry, he was on the road. But Capernaum, it seems, kind of became his home base, at least where he would come back to occasionally. And so it says here that he was at home. That's what it says in verse 1. And what was he doing? Now he's back at home. It's vacation time, right? Just kick back. Relax. No, that's not it. Look at verse 2. And many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door, and he was preaching the word. People gathered together. What did Jesus do? He preached. And what did he preach? Mark, again, now, so many of the other gospel writers, they'll, they'll give us the content of the sermons that Jesus gave. Mark just says he was preaching, and he was preaching the word. That's all we get from Mark. The best summary we have is in verses 14 and 15. Remember, it said Jesus was saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. That was the core of what Jesus was teaching. Okay? So Jesus is teaching, the kingdom is coming, and your response is to repent and believe in the gospel. And it says that a crowd had gathered so much that there was no more room, not even at the door. Wouldn't that be cool if that happened here? Uh, the leaders just decided on Monday to order 40 more chairs. Wouldn't that be cool if they got filled up like that? that? That as we see more and more people coming here on a Sunday morning, that we order more chairs and then they're like, oh shoot, I guess we should have ordered more chairs than more chairs. That would be great to see. That's the problem they're having here. Jesus probably in a home, maybe at max could hold 50 people or whatever, and he's preaching and there's so many people that there wasn't even room at the door. Now, I did a little bit of studying this week, and I wanted to point this out to you because it really, 
Uh, it sunk in deep to me, and it wasn't something I thought would sink in deep to me. But I did a little studying on what the role of the crowd is in Mark. A lot of times we think, right, as a church in our culture, we think we're doing really, really good if we have a crowd gathered on a Sunday morning. And that's oftentimes a measure of our success, isn't it? That if we have a lot of people here together on a Sunday morning, we're doing well as a church. And if we don't, we're not. And there's some truth to that. But in the Gospel of Mark, crowds play a lot different role And they're not at all a mark of success or a measure of success in the Gospel of Mark. If we would go through the Gospel of Mark, we would find this about crowds. In a crowd, and I would say this is probably true about the crowd that we have here this morning, there was one of three things basically that happened in a crowd in the Gospel of Mark. There were people who were in the crowd and really just didn't get it. They were there because Jesus was the best show in town. He worked miracles. They wanted to see miracles. They didn't really get anything of what he was actually proclaiming, but they just wanted to see a miracle. They were there for a show. A lot of people in the crowd are there for that purpose. Other people in the crowd were Jesus' disciples, really seeking to understand what it was that he was saying and figuring out how they could then live in response to what he was saying. Some people were disciples, A lot of people were just people not getting it, and some people in the crowd were opposed. Almost all the time that you see a crowd in the Gospels, there were people that were there, not for the purpose of trying to understand what Jesus was saying. They were trying to wait for Jesus to slip up so they could get him. A lot of people in crowds were opposed to Jesus. And so, in the Gospel of Mark, what one person said is this, the single most common attribute of crowds in Mark is that they obstruct access to Jesus. If you look through the book of Mark, and you look at crowds, what's happening is crowds are actually getting in the way of other people getting to Jesus. Mark didn't see crowds as a good thing. He saw them usually as a bad thing, obstructing access to Jesus. And as I was studying this, I couldn't help but think of our church, and there is a crowd gathered here every Sunday morning. And that crowd, the average size of the crowd seems to be increasing over the last year. And that can be a very good thing, but I don't want us to become arrogant in thinking that we're somehow unlike crowds in the Gospel of Mark. And I was struck with the truth that we likely have people in the crowd, I hope, I don't think very many opposed, just waiting for me to slip up and then just jump on me. Um, I don't think we have a lot of that, but I think we probably have a lot of people that are here from week to week that just really don't get it. They're a part of the crowd, but they're not disciples. They're not committed followers of Jesus Christ. And so what I did as I was preparing this week, is I just stopped and I just prayed. I asked that God would open the ears of the people that are in the crowd on Sunday morning. That He would open the eyes of people. That He would give me wisdom to speak the truth with clarity and compassion. So that people might understand. But in the end, it's a work of the Spirit that has to happen. I looked at 1 Corinthians 2, 14-16, where, where Paul says there are, peop- there are things that are perceived spiritually. And natural people, people that don't have the Holy Spirit dwelling in them, just aren't going to understand them. And I think that happens week in and week out here. So I want to just do that right now. Let's just pray that as we open God's Word and look at it this morning, that God would do stuff. God, we come before You 
powerless. And I come before you confessing that I I trust way too often in my own power. God, I, I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and be present here in your church, in your people, and that your Spirit would be doing what your Spirit does. Bringing conviction of sin and reminding us of everything that Jesus taught so that those who are sitting here who have been a part of the crowd maybe even for years, that they might see the need to become disciples and not just a part of the crowd. God, I pray that it would never be true of this church that the crowd that's gathered would in any way obstruct access to Jesus, but that everybody who comes and is a part of the crowd here would see Jesus and, and recognize the access that they have to Him as the healer, as their rescuer, as the Savior, and as Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. We want people in the church to not just be a part of a crowd. We want people here on Sunday morning, but we want people who are disciples of Jesus and not just a part of the crowd. As leadership, we've been talking about uh, starting an initiative now in September. A lot of people already get engaged in discipleship groups and small groups, little Bible studies meeting here and there. We're going to have a focused effort in the month of September where we want every adult in the church to be engaged in a small discipleship group. Just a six-week commitment that we hope will lead to greater things as we look at what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus. That's a little ways off, but we're not putting it off till then. We want you to be involved. There's opportunities, you see them in the bulletin, to be engaged in relationship with each other as we grow as disciples. Now, let's look at verses 3 through 5 very quickly. It says, And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Okay, needy friend for sure. Some of you have needy friends. This friend was needy. He couldn't get around by himself even. And so he thankfully had friends who were faithful in doing what he needed them to do. And they carried him around. They knew that Jesus could meet their needs. Look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd. See again, there's the crowd obstructing access to Jesus. When they could not get near him because of the crowd, listen to what they did. They removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. I love that it says, and when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they set the dude back down on the ground and went themselves anyway and got as close as they could. Uh Uh-uh, that's not what they did. They didn't make excuses. We're, We're a people that make excuses a lot. It would have been a good excuse that, hey, big crowd, we can't get there, sorry. Or it would have been a good excuse like, I don't own this house. I shouldn't dig a hole in the roof. That would have been a good excuse. Or it could have been a good excuse like, hey, Jesus is in the middle of a sermon. We can't interrupt him right now. We make a lot of excuses for why we don't take our friends to Jesus. Don't we? A lot of excuses. I love that these guys aren't making excuses. They are taking their friend to Jesus. It says in verse 4, And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had made an opening. This took some time. Okay, If you want to know what a roof looked like, we usually imagine roofs like we see roofs. Obviously, they didn't have asphalt shingles in that day. The way a roof would look and the way a roof functioned was much different from ours. Roofs were flat because they were also used as a place, usually inside a house, it was pretty dark. 
Okay? And so up on a roof would be the spot where you could get some fresh air and some sunlight. And so a roof kind of served as a deck. But it had to be sturdy. A roof was usually made by making parallel timbers that went across and formed kind of the base. And then on top of that, there would be a bunch of thatch kind of stuff and then mud two feet thick. Okay? So this is no, this is no little roof with a little bit of insulation that they had to... They were digging through a roof that was two feet thick. That wasn't their roof. Okay? Uh, and, and so they're up there. And I'm imagining, I'm picturing in my head what this might have looked like. You know, the homeowner, like, what's going on up there? And he's fighting his way back out through the crowd to run up on his roof and say, what's going on? And these guys, they don't care. They just keep digging. And they're making a hole. And now I can see, too, I love the word picture that this one, this one pastor um, put together. Here's what he said. Kent Hughes is his name. He says, Above, with light streaming past them in dusty beams, Four sweaty, impish, determined faces, and below, the Pharisees and scribes shaking dirt from their robes, and in their midst, the prince and the paralytic. I like that picture. These determined friends on top. We are going to get our friend to Jesus. It had to be a pretty big hole that they built, that they dug, to get this friend on his mat down to Jesus. These friends are persistent. Oh, if we would just be that persistent in getting our friends to Jesus and not just kind of shrug it off like, well, I tried to invite them to church one time and they didn't want to come. Yes, that's it. Now, these friends had faith. They knew Jesus could give their friend what their friend most needed. And so we look at verse 5 and it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, these friends are full of faith. They didn't just, and faith, a lot of times we think faith is like understanding a few key concepts in our head. But that's not really what faith is. As we look at what faith is throughout the Gospels, we see people that do things in obedience to God that seem kind of radical to everybody else. Faith is not so much acknowledging a truth privately in your head, it is taking action publicly. That's what it looked like for these guys to have faith. It didn't look like them to say, well, I know Jesus can do something about this. We'll see what he will do. No, it takes shovels and hands and whatever else digging through a roof to take their friend to Jesus. And Jesus recognizes that faith that is showing itself in action. Now we're going to see Jesus turn his attention to some scribes. Let's look at the second half of verse 5. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. What? Now as they finally dig through the roof and lay this paralytic on his mat, lowering him down so he's right there by Jesus as Jesus preaches, what would you expect from Jesus? Maybe... A rebuke. Like, what are you doing? This ain't your roof. I'm trying to preach here. Or maybe, because we know the character of Jesus a little more, maybe we'd expect just the healing. That Jesus would say, like He did to the leper, like He did to Peter's mother-in-law, that He would just say to this man, you're healed. But what does Jesus say? Look at verse 5. What does Jesus say? He says, Son, your sins are forgiven. 
We'll get to that more in just a little bit, but I want you to know this, that the presenting need that your friend has, maybe you have a needy friend, and they need you to listen to them, they need you to give advice to them, they need you to be there for them, and I hope that you do all those things. But, listen, the presenting need of our friends is not always the deepest need of our friends. You hear that? The presenting need of our friends is not always the deepest need of our friends. The presenting need for this man was that he was paralyzed. He wanted to walk. That's why his friends brought him to Jesus. His friends brought him to Jesus because they wanted him to walk again, and they knew Jesus could heal him. But that wasn't his greatest need. Jesus recognized this man's greatest need, and he looks at him, and he says, Son, your sins are forgiven. And that ruffles some feathers with some people known as scribes. Look at verse 6. Now some of the scribes were sitting there. <laughs> they're already mad because their robes just got a little dirty. So they're, like, they're, they're just a little, like, already just like, uh-oh. Look out, scribes are mad. And then they hear Jesus say this, Son, your sins are forgiven? What? They're questioning in their hearts. Verse 7 says, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're asking a good question. Now notice, they didn't even say anything to each other. Maybe they raised their eyebrows and they looked at each other like, Did you just hear that? He just said your sins are forgiven. What? They're just questioning in their hearts. That's all that's going on now. They're wondering, and they have a good question. That is a good question the scribes are asking. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Not even priests in the Old Testament had the authority to forgive sins. And it wasn't even expected that the Messiah would have that kind of authority. So these guys are asking a really good question. Who does this guy think he is? Saying, your sins are forgiven. They were recognizing what it was that Jesus was doing. And you know what Jesus was doing right here? Jesus was claiming to be God. That is offensive to these scribes. That is blasphemy. If somebody who is not God is claiming to be God. And the punishment for blasphemy was having rocks thrown at you until you died. So this is a serious thing that Jesus is saying here when He is taking authority as God it's offensive to scribes. It's offensive today when we say that Jesus alone is God. God in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. He is the way, the truth, and the life. That is an offensive thing to say to people in our culture today. Take offense at that. We like plurality in our culture. We don't like one God. One way. That's it. And they were offended that Jesus was claiming to be God, as he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. We've seen the authority of Jesus show up in many ways, but here now, Jesus is showing his authority in a much more strong way than he's shown it even yet in chapter 1 in Mark. Now in chapter 2, he's saying, I have authority to say to somebody, Son, your sins are forgiven. And so the scribes are questioning this in their hearts. <laughs> Look at verse 8. And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit, 
that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, so Jesus, whether, whether He's tapping into His divine nature or whether it's just human perception, He understands what they're thinking. And He says, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Why do you question these things in your hearts? Let's look at verse 9. Which is easier, Jesus says, to say to this paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Let's try and answer Jesus' question. Which is easier to say? Well, it's actually easier to say, your sins are forgiven. Because if Jesus says that, nobody's going to prove him wrong. How are you supposed to know if somebody's sins are really forgiven? If Jesus, though, would say, rise, take up your mat and walk, and this guy doesn't get up and walk, he's going to look kind of foolish. It was easier for Jesus to say, son, your sins are forgiven. The point Jesus is trying to make, though, and you'll see it in a little bit, is that he has power to do both. He can say to this man, your sins are forgiven, and they are forgiven. And he can say to this man, get up and walk, and this man will get up and walk. Jesus has the power to do whatever he wants to do. Look at verse 10. But that you may know. Now listen to this. He's addressing the scribes. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. We can get to what he says in a second. I want to notice though first, this is the first time it comes up in Mark where Jesus uses the title Son of Man to refer to himself. It's going to come up more, and so we need to talk very quickly about what that means. Why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Why doesn't he say the Christ, so that you would know that the Christ, the Messiah, has authority to forgive sins? He doesn't say that. And again, because we, like we talked about last week, people's expectations of what the Messiah came to do were so um, off in so many ways that Jesus couldn't reveal himself yet as the Messiah. So he told demons and people to be quiet. But why does Jesus call himself the Son of Man? Answer from one of my seminary professors was this, and I think it's a good answer. It could refer to an ordinary human being or to a supernatural being. It had overtones of both humanity and deity, and by using this term, Jesus forced persons to make up their own minds as to what kind of person he was. Was he a man, or capital T, capital M, the man? That's what Jesus was doing as he used this term, son of man. comes out of the book of Daniel. We see in the book of Daniel, chapter 7, the son of man being used as a God term. But all throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see the son of man being used as just a guy term. Jesus was fully God and fully man, and by using this term, he's keeping it kind of vague and ambiguous, letting people decide for themselves, who do you think I am? Okay? So Jesus says, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. Jesus cares about the scribes, I love that, that he's talking to them, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins speaks to the scribes and shares with them the good news. And the good news that he shares today with us as well is that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. You might be 
feeling and suffering under the weight and burden of your own sin, thinking that yours is too far, you've gone too far, it's been too long, it's too ugly, and He can't forgive mine. And you need to know the truth about Jesus' identity, that He has authority to forgive sin. He has that authority. He says to the paralytic, now let's look at verse 11. Now we see Jesus interacting with the paralytic. Last two verses here. I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and immediately picked up his bed, and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Again, a word picture from that same pastor. He says this, What a moment. The paralytic, illuminated by the dusty shafts of light from the hole above, was leaping and whooping it up. And his four friends were yahooing down through the opening. The crowd was ooing and aahing. And the Pharisees and scribes were frowning. I wish I could have been there, don't you? Don't you read some stories in, in the Bible and say, man, I wish I could have been there. This is a historical account of something that really happened, and because it's historical, that means it already happened. We can't be there. But I want to close this morning by asking us, can we be there in some ways? Do we have a Jesus who is still approachable? who is still fully God, who still has authority to forgive sins? Do we have some friends who desperately need to know Jesus? And I think the answer for all of us is yes. The greater miracle that occurs in this passage is not that this guy gets up to walk. Jesus did that external physical miracle to show that He has authority to do a greater internal miracle. That He has authority to forgive sins. So the question I want to leave with you, Christian, is this. Do you have a needy friend? I wish, pray, that we, that me as your pastor, and that we as a church family, would all together have a greater compassion for lost people. That our hearts would break for those who have not repented of their sin and trusted in Jesus. I want to have a heart more like my three-year-old sons. Tell you another kid's story. A couple weeks ago, I was in my office uh, and uh, came home to hear from Kirsten that while I was gone, uh, it was a day when Annika was homesick from school, so Kirsten had her hands full. But um, a couple of people from the Kingdom Hall of Jehovah's Witnesses had stopped by our home. And Kirsten didn't have time to talk because of sick kids and, and just kids. And so she took their material. And when she came in, she took it and she just threw it in the garbage. And when I got home from work that day, she asked Isaiah to explain to me what had happened that day. Kirsten had explained to Isaiah that she was throwing that in the garbage because those people don't believe that Jesus is God. When I got home from work that day, my little son was trying to explain to me what happened. 
that there were some people that came to our house that didn't believe Jesus was God, and he couldn't even finish explaining that to me because he just started bawling. That his heart was so broken that there are people in our town that don't believe that Jesus is God. I want to have a heart like that. And I think we all know people who don't believe that Jesus is God and that He has authority to forgive sins. So I'd ask you, do you love them enough to be obedient and to share the Gospel with them? Will we do that? I'm pretty sure, Ralph, if people want to bring their friends to church, you'll open the door, won't you? They don't have to dig a hole through the roof. Okay, excellent. Ralph will be there. He'll open the door. This roof, you don't have to dig a hole through it. Um, We'll make a way for your friends to come in. It's really pretty easy. We don't even have to have the kind of faith that these friends have. We don't even have to be as persistent as these friends were. We need to take our friends... Maybe some of you just need the boldness to share with them on your own, but maybe, maybe just the first step is just inviting them to come with you to church, and if you've done it before, to just do it again. This man rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. Here's what I love about this. He picked up this bed that he had been limited to and trapped in for I don't know how many years. And now this bed that he depended on for transportation is now being transported by him. He has power over that bed that once kind of had power over him. Listen, you have a friend who has depended for years on his or her sin for satisfaction. They've been limited by their sin and trapped in their sin. But if your friend would put their faith in Christ, who alone has authority to forgive sin your friend could be set free from the power of sin. And your friend, your family member, the person you've been praying for, can pick up that sin bed and walk out before the crowd and all might be amazed in glorifying God saying, we've never seen anything like this. Oh, that that would happen in our church. We have an opportunity, especially over these next couple weeks, where a lot of people who don't normally come to church, they start thinking about that around Easter time. Don't they? 